Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. And I am really glad that today I have uh, with me my friend Rod Dreher, who's the author of a new book that is creating a lot of waves uh, around the country called uh, The Benedict Option. And uh, we're going to talk about this book. And basically, the argument of the book is that with American culture changing, moving in the direction that American culture and really, in many ways, global culture is moving, the church is going to need to shore up its foundations. And so we're going to have to uh, make a, I'm not sure if Rod would hold to this characterization, but a a kind of strategic retreat uh, in order to build up uh, our own communities in order to then uh, engage uh, the rest of the world. So Rod Dreher, uh, welcome uh, to Signpost today. It's great to be here. You know, an older uh, pastor told me one time, and it was it was really kind of a revelation to me. It shook me a little bit uh, because he said uh, that when he looks at the things that I have written over the years, that he sees a very common theme kind of exile orphan sort of uh, theme uh, that's present there and kind of tied all the all of my books together in a way that I hadn't seen. I think a similar thing is true uh, for your books. The first book that you uh, that you had written that I had read was Crunchy Cons several years ago about what it means to be a conservative who is uh, rooted and, and locally bound. And then a little bit later, you wrote uh, The Little Way of Ruthie Lemming about, uh, about your, your hometown, about your sister, about uh, returning uh, to those roots for yourself. Uh, you wrote a book called How Dante Saved My Life about uh, really those same sorts of themes, about coming to yourself and coming to a, to a home. And now The Benedict Option is, I think, really consistent with all of those things, except that you're applying it to the rest of the church, about a a call to being uh, rooted and to being at home. Uh, Do you sort of see see a trajectory in in all of your your career over these years in that direction? You know, that's a great question, a really great insight. In fact, I was reminded recently by a friend that I first talked about the Benedict Option in CrunchyCons, which came out in 2006. Because even then, I was thinking about how we can live more authentic, rooted lives in this culture in which everything is in flux. And uh, I I think with the new book, The Benedict Option, it comes into uh, more of a a maturity, these ideas. And uh, and I think that this is a sort of thing that is absolutely necessary for the church because we know we're never going to be at home in this world. Mm-hmm. That's just part of our, our condition as believers. But we are on a pilgrimage through this life, and in order to stay on the straight path, which is the Dante, uh, we have to be able to stand outside of the world, not be conformed to the world, but to allow our our hearts to be conformed to Christ so we can present Him to the world in the world. That sounds a little bit confusing, but I think about Jeremiah 29, and that might be a a better explanation for what I'm calling for than to to cite the monasteries. The Lord, speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, told the Hebrews in exile that he had called them there for a purpose, and that he was going to deliver them someday. But while they were there, he wanted them to make their home among the Babylonians, but not to be conformed to them. Mm -hmm. And, And I think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. How did those men of Israel find the courage and the faith to be willing to go into the fiery furnace before they betrayed the Lord. Um, That's the sort of thing that we're going to have to face, too. We are facing, as the Church in the 21st century, 
God willing, we won't have to face uh, a choice between the fiery furnace or apostasy, but there are so many ways that the the modern culture, post-Christian culture, seduces us that we have to be prepared to uh, to withstand it and give ourselves and and in community the spiritual uh, strength to resist, even if it causes us to suffer. You know, uh, one of the critiques that will come of the Benedict Option and the thing that you hear over and over again is that I think a caricature that what you're calling for is uh, to step away, to surrender, uh, not to engage the rest of of the culture on the outside. That's not really what I hear you arguing. Uh, Am I right? You're absolutely right, and that's one of the most frustrating things about this, because I, what I'm simply saying, and it's very clear in the book, is that in order to be Christ for the world in which, into which we're called to witness, we have to step back a little bit into our own communities to strengthen our, our knowledge of the gospel, to strengthen our practices, to conform our hearts to the gospel, and to build stronger Christian communities. When I was in, in Italy, in Norcia, the, the hometown of St. Benedict, I was there at the monastery, and one of the monks explained it to me like this. He said, you know, we, we have in the rule of St. Benedict uh, a commandment to welcome the stranger as if the stranger was Christ himself. Hmm. And But in order to do that, said the monk, we have to spend a lot of time behind our walls in prayer, in fasting, in scripture study, and things like that. So when the when the visitor, when the stranger comes to us, he can see the face of Christ in us. Mm. And the monk was saying that that is the sort of thing that all of us Christians have to do. Clearly, we who are called to live in the world, not in a monastery, uh, it, we're doing that under different conditions, but we still have to do it. You know, some of um, some of the listeners to this program are, are Catholic or Orthodox or other things, but most of the listeners to this program are Evangelical Protestants. And so when you think about the, the Evangelical landscape in America right now, if you, if you were speaking to evangelical pastors and evangelical parents, what would you say practically to them is the way to prepare a new generation for, for what's happening culturally? Boy, that's a, that's a big question. I, as someone who's never been an evangelical, I've learned so much in the past couple of years in interacting with evangelicals, in particular Southern Baptist friends, about what the landscape, cultural landscape looks like from an evangelical point of view. And I think one thing that I would say particularly to evangelicals is to uh, is to make themselves more aware of church history, mm-hmm. of what the faith has looked like in the past. Dr. Uh, Al Mohler said recently, I was on his podcast, and he encouraged his listeners, his evangelical listeners, to go back to Reformation history, to the beginning of the Reformation, and there you will find resources that will enable you to strengthen yourself as an evangelical in the, the face of this post-Christian uh, storm that we're facing. And I would suggest that. Go back into church history, and don't be so afraid of things like liturgies and practices, things that might seem on the outside like works righteousness. It's really not. It does not have to be. It could be if you took it the wrong way, but it does not have to be. All this does is trains us and trains our hearts in in ways that uh, we're living out the gospel becomes second nature mm-hmm. to us. I, I think uh, about the time when I... I came to Christ as an adult, uh, as a Roman Catholic, and I've been raised in a uh, in sort of a weak sauce uh, Methodism cultural Christianity, and uh, lost my faith as a teenager, but came to Christ as a Roman Catholic. 
And uh, I remember when I was coming into the Catholic Church, uh, one of my colleagues, I was at the newspaper in Baton Rouge back then, and she said, oh, you're going to be a Catholic. Well, um, I'm a Catholic, and why don't you come with me to work in Mother Teresa's Missionaries of Charity soup kitchen and make soup for the poor this weekend? I said, oh, that sounds like a very Catholic thing to do. So I did it. And I spent the whole afternoon peeling potatoes and uh, scrubbing pots and when I was done, I said, well, this sounds good, but I'm really more of an intellectual. I would use my time better by reading books of theology. And, uh, and that's what I did. I never went back to the soup kitchen. Fast forward 13 years or so, my Catholic faith was in complete ruins because I'd been writing about the sexual abuse scandal. And I thought that as long as I had the arguments straight in my head, mm. that my faith could withstand anything. But it wasn't true. And I realized there, uh, at the bottom of my spiritual despair, I realized that if I had spent as much time in that soup kitchen, peeling potatoes, scrubbing pots, as I did with my head in a book, my faith would have been more resilient in the face of this tremendous trial I faced. So that's a lesson that I think is true for every Christian. Our faith can't be simply what we read about in a book or what's in our head. It has to be embodied in certain practices. Absolutely. You know, when I'm thinking about uh, the Benedict Option as it relates to evangelical Christians, I think one of the things that most people think about is the the sexuality question and, and all right. of the, the all of the the sexual revolution controversies that we have going on around us. I'm actually more concerned when it comes to the next generation with some really mundane questions about calendar and time. So when, I, when I'm looking at the fact that uh, when I was a kid growing up in an evangelical church, a good bit of my week was in the community of the church and in with the other generations uh, of the church in a way that most evangelical kids growing up in America right now really only have an hour or two, worship service and, and Sunday school with their church community, and that's it, if that. And then what's coming up against that um, when I'm talking to pastors and parents, uh, one of the biggest issues they have with kids it will be weekend sports and, and all of the, the sorts of distractions that come in. How can we sort of fight against all of those incursions that, that come, come at us to, to, to cause us to think of ourselves as consumers, as Americans, as successes and all of those things before we think of ourselves as Christians? Oh, what a terrific question, and that's the heart of it, isn't it? I mean, we have to—we are so fragmented as Americans, and we tend to think of—this is not just an evangelical problem. Uh, we tend to think of ourselves, of our Christian faith, as being a part of the whole. In fact, as the monks of, of Norcia will tell you, that if Christ is not at the absolute center of your life and, and everything else is not ordered around Him, then you're going to fail as a, as a Christian. And I, I see this, we lived in Philadelphia, my wife and my kids and I, and we had to pull our kid, one of our kids, out of uh, out of the baseball league, little league baseball, because they play games on Sunday morning. And mm-hmm. we said, son, we're sorry, but you can't participate. We're in church on Sunday morning. That was a hard moment, but it was a teaching moment. I saw for myself in our my little uh, hometown of St. Francisville, Louisiana, we had an Orthodox mission church there, and the priest came out of the Russian tradition, and he said, hey, in this tradition, if you want to receive communion on Sunday morning, you have to be here on Saturday night for Vespers, for evening prayer. And we didn't like it one bit, because, you know, Louisiana being Louisiana, we want to go to the crawfish boil, we want to go to the Tigers game, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. 
but we did it because that was what the tradition required of us. And do you know, after just a few months, I went from being resentful at that to being grateful for it because that little practice, 45 minutes on Saturday night when I wanted to be doing something else, it reshaped my heart into realizing that Christ is at the center of my life. It's Christ, Christ first and everything else after that. So little practices like that, Russell, can can teach us and teach our children to reorder ourselves around Christ. Because if we're not willing to suffer the loss of comfort, the loss of convenience for the sake of the gospel, then we're not going to stand uh, when we're put to the test in a severe way. Somebody asked me not long ago to say what I thought would be the differences between my view of cultural engagement and uh, the Benedict Option. And I said that it seems to me that when it comes to shoring up the community and, and shaping up the church as a countercultural witness, you and I are completely on the same page, that I think where we might have a difference is not about uh, the church, but about the direction of the culture. And so I think that I may be more optimistic about the culture than than you are. I think you have a, a, a very sober view of where the culture is going. And so I may be naive and, and wrong, but let's assume that where you see the culture going is where it goes. What does that look like uh, for the next generation? I mean, what, what should a parent uh, right now be thinking about in terms of what his or her grandchildren will be facing in American life? Well, I tell you, that as a parent myself, my kids are 17, 13, and 10, one of the things that worries me the most when I think about the future is what uh, our media environment is doing to them. And I mean specifically social media, smartphones, mm-hmm. and the Internet. Uh, as I travel around the country talking at colleges, both evangelical and Catholic colleges, about the Benedict Option, I hear the same thing over and over again from professors and campus ministers. Pornography is eating these kids alive. Absolutely, and and uh, and it it drives me crazy when I when I hear about Christian parents who have their kids in church on Sunday, send them to youth group, hold the right thoughts in their heads, and yet they hand their small children smartphones. You yes. know, and this is a disconnection. They they don't understand that the smartphone and the liturgy of the um, of of online and of social media is totally fragmenting these kids. Uh, not only is it bringing uh, harmful, destructive things like hardcore pornography into their lives and their imaginations, but it is also teaching them that life is what goes on on the smartphone, what yeah. goes on inside their heads. Real life is something is, is something that is right in front of them electronically. That's not true, and uh, we need the kids need to be pulled out of themselves. But uh, I, I'll tell you, even in, you know, I, I have a, a young friend, a son of some friends of mine, who is 13 years old, has no friends in his Christian school, because he's the only one there whose parents don't let him have a smartphone and yeah. and, and be on the Internet. And uh, he's got nothing else to talk to these kids about. And these are kids in a conservative Christian school. So that disconnect between Christian parents who are completely willing to accept and allow their kids to be formed by the culture of smartphones, social media, and online, that is going to fragment them so much, and it trains them to think of the faith as not something that shapes them, that they must conform themselves to, but rather the faith is something that they can shape 
and their own image. Do you think, Rod, uh, Benedict Options coming out right now, it has uh, all sorts of conversation going on about it all over the country. Do you suppose that 20 years from now that we're going to be looking back and saying the Benedict Option is the direction that we went in terms of the church? Or are we going to look back and see it as a a voice crying in the wilderness uh, that was ignored? Do, Do you really think uh, do you think that the church in America is resilient enough to be able to, to weather this? I don't think the church is resilient as it is right now. It's sufficiently resilient because so many Christians, uh, lay people and ordained uh, ministers, don't understand the nature of the problem and think that, that things are going to be okay if we just keep doing what we're doing. But you know as well as I do that the social science research shows that that's just not true. Mm-hmm. I write in the Benedict Option about moralistic therapeutic deism, the, the pseudo-Christianity that is the de facto religion of American youth. It's just religion of uh, fake Christianity of comfort, of pleasure. Um, and I, I think that I was raised like that. Look, I'm 50 years old, and one of the things I've liked so much about your ministry is that you and I are both uh, men, Christians from the Deep South, who have been tremendously formed by the failure of the white church to stand up to segregation and racism. Mm -hmm. Um, I think about coming up in the 70s in my little church, uh, this was never brought up at all. And it was one of the things that shocked me away from Christianity as a teenager, seeing the failure of the church to take the right stand in that that issue. Well, you know, we we hopefully are moving toward the right stand now uh, on on race, we're seeing racial reconciliation, and thanks be to God for it. But I wonder what issues face the church right now that we're failing on, we're dropping mm-hmm. the ball on because it makes us uncomfortable. And uh, I'm hoping the Benedict option will spark conversation among believers and across denominations, because we need each other uh, to help us figure out how we're going to weather this storm. And we have to leave it all up to God, though. This is not a formula for, like, you do this thing, you do this gimmick, and Mm -hmm. boom, everything's going to be okay. But it is a long-term conversation for how we build the institutions and the habits that will enable us to weather this storm in the same way that, say, Benedict's monasteries over three centuries enabled Christians in Western Europe to weather the storm and to be ready to be brought out of exile. Well, listeners, the book is called The Benedict Option. Uh, read it and let me know what you think. And also check out Rod Dreher's blog. It's at the American Conservative, and he, he blogs uh, several times a day. It's the first site I check uh, in the morning because really, really insightful, fascinating stuff there. So I, I commend it to you. Rod Dreher, thanks for being with us on Signpost today. It was a pleasure. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts.